a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Howdy, you are listening to the Howie Games Artist Series, Episode 6, Part A, starring a man who is part of what was the biggest band on the planet in excess. His name is Kirk Pengilly, and the man is literally a rock star. Excess has reportedly sold over 75 million albums worldwide. They have a string of number one hits, starting with Original Sin. They released 12 studio albums, of which Kick was bigger than big, and cracked the US market like few other Australian artists. They played huge shows worldwide. The States, South America, they were massive. Europe, if you want to get a gauge of how big In Excess were, Go and watch their live Baby Live concert at Wembley Stadium in 1991. It is a cracking rock and roll show. In front of a sellout, 72,000 screaming fans, it is the essence of rock and roll. Time flies. In Excess are now celebrating the 30th anniversary of Live Baby Live on November 14. Equally cool, In Excess have just launched their first ever e-commerce store. Check it out, www.inexcess.com. It rocks. It has an incredible, and I mean incredible vinyl collection, merchandise and limited edition gear like skateboards. Do yourself a favour, inexcess.com. So this is Kirk's story, a bloke who loved music, met some fellas who also loved music, the Farris brothers, Andrew, Tim and John, Gary Beers and Michael Hutchins, brought a van, travelled the length and breadth of the country, playing shows, working hard, and I mean really hard, honed their craft and then took on the world. Now, just before we get going, a massive shout-out and huge thanks to Selena Muros at Warner Chapel Music, Adam Moore, Karina Masters and Donna Fitz-Henry at Universal Music, Sam Evans at Murphy Petrol Group and Karen Griffin at Identity PR for making this episode happen and allowing us to use the In Excess music in this episode you will hear. They move mountains and I appreciate all of them and what they've done to make this episode happen. Let's be honest. Who wouldn't want to be a rock star? This is the story of one, Kirk Pengilly. Wow, what a a treat this is for me. We are moving into true rock stardom on the Howie Games, the Artist Series, with a man that dominated in In Excess, one of the biggest bands in the world. In fact, the biggest band in the world in its time. (laughs) And by gee, is that a collection behind you? Kirk Pengilly, thanks for joining me on the show. How are you, great man? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, well, uh, as I said to you earlier... That's my shelf there, right? <laughs> Lane gave me one little tiny shelf, as she says, put baby in the corner. But um, the room's quite big, but, and, you know, most of the In Excess Awards are, are plaques, you know, gold, platinum, and you need a lot of wall space and we don't have that. Our house is a lot of glass. So, uh, so yeah, it's kind of more Lane's room than mine, you know. Well, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Mate, I have in the last... 10 days, I have immersed myself in excess. I've been in in excess. I've been listening. I've been watching uh, video clips. I watched the concert from Wembley. By gee, you boys were a big, big, successful rock star operation. There's no other word to say apart from rock star. Yeah, it was, it was 
pretty amazing. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned the, the Wembley concert. Around that time we were doing, you know, selling out stadiums all around the world. I don't think, you know, we always played it down in Australia because of the whole, certainly back in the 80s and 90s, the, the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. And, and, and also, you know, for me coming home was really important just for grounding and because it was crazy, you know, what, what, what we did and what we were doing. And uh, every day was, a, you know, a different city and uh, constantly touring um you know media and and live shows and it was full on um lucky we were young then i have so many questions to ask you because <laughs> mate, mate I, and you're standing up and you said how long is this going to go and i said oh yeah, maybe yeah. an hour and a half if we get four hours in and you need a spell just yeah. let me know <laughs> before we get to Actually, there's something I want to ask you about straight off the top from what you said there. It, it comes up with a lot of Australian athletes are on this show as opposed to international athletes who are often celebrated for being bigger, stronger, more outlandish. Yet in Australia, we want our rich and famous to be low key, which yeah. re- reading your book in excess, which is an outstanding read, it hit me that maybe you didn't get the support and encouragement that you deserve from this part of the world. It's an Australian thing, but... Kirk, I love Australia and I know you do as well. It seems to be the only real downer we have in this country. Yeah, it, it is, you know, it was difficult and, and it was also, you know, there were times in our career where um, we got a lot of shit from, you know, our peers as well and and I, I don't know, I, I think, you know, we worked really hard to get to where we did and I don't believe we trod on toes along the way. It was just, um, I have to say, you know, Chris, our manager, was was on occasion somewhat arrogant and I think he, he probably... <laughs> pissed some people off within the industry. But but the, the other fact of the matter is, is we were outside Australia so much, I didn't even know who the people were in our record company in Australia or who were the key media people were or or even to some extent what other acts were happening, you know, what other bands were happening at the time because we were just outside Australia all the time, touring, you know, Europe, North America, South America, um, Asia, and, and it was constant. So... I think, you know, in some ways we were a little bit alienated uh, and maybe that came across, you know, in Australia, as you say, where, where it is very down-to-earth, a very down-to-earth attitude. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, not that we all tried to be down-to-earth, I think it's something that's got to be intrinsically, you know, mm. built into you. But we were just normal guys that, you know, all went to school together and started practising in a garage and then all of a sudden we're, you know, selling out stadiums around the world. So it, it, it's nuts, yeah. You, you say all of a sudden there's so many themes that roll through the podcast, the sporting side of the Howie Games. It is those that work hardest. That's the thing I've learnt from doing this pod, including yeah, right. from your beautiful wife. It's those that work the hardest that achieve the most success. Reading your book and we'll explore it. I didn't realise how hard you worked. You were not an overnight sensation. We'll get to hard work in a moment. But I said uh, the idea of this, and I rang you on the phone and said, we like to have a bit of a chat about your sporting background first. And we had a chat <laughs> on the phone the other day and you said, well, there was not a great deal of sport for you growing up. No. But you, you played a bit of cricket, though. I need to hear about that first. Yeah, in school, you know, but I, I didn't I didn't do, I didn't kind of really go for team sports. Um, and, you know, back in, in my day in school, School, there was, you know, a sport afternoon every week where you had to play a particular sport. 
Um, and I chose things like ten pin bowling, uh, <laughs> ice skating, um, all the ones that avoided kind of smashing into someone. Um, <laughs> you know, and I and I, I don't think I was particularly interested in sport anyway. Uh, my two elder brothers were they they played Aussie rules because we were from Melbourne originally, and and cricket. My my eldest brother's only just retired from playing. You know, I, I don't know what level of cricket is social is cricket, but uh, and he's he's just turned seventy. So um, he, you know, but now, um, and especially probably, you know, from the time I met Lane, which is, you know, nearly 20 years ago, um, she's obviously into sport. Um, and I, I, like, I hated NRL and, and I couldn't stand to watch it. And then Lane was a big Manly fan and, and Parramatta fan and she watched it all the time and, I, I gradually grew uh, into loving it, and now I'm obsessed with it. You know, I'm in tipping a tipping comp every year. I watch every game. I mean, uh, I won't even talk about Origin last night, but anyway, no, no, another another smacking for New South Wales as we're recording this. Yeah, yeah, but I I I, I love to watch. So um, I love cricket, tennis, NRL, um, and and I you know I don't mind Formula One too. But as far as actually actively participating. Um, not really, you know, just just got through with what I had to participate in in school. You mentioned Formula One, one of my favourite sports. Don't tell me who won last night between Verstappen no. and Hamilton because I, I haven't watched it. Hamilton comes out onto the racetrack now and is he going to be ahead of Lando Norris? That's the big key. No, he's not. And there's Max Verstappen right behind Hamilton into the first chicane once again. It's wheel to wheel. Hamilton and Verstappen oh. and this time Verstappen and Hamilton have crashed out and they are both out as Hamilton came from his pit stop, rejoined the racetrack. Lando Norris was ahead and in their desperation to stay ahead and to get ahead, the two championship protagonists have taken each other out of the Italian Grand Prix. Talk about rock stars. Do you appreciate Lewis Hamilton and what he brings to that sport because he is showtime, he is rock star. What he wears, his attitude, his approaches, I like everything about the man because he is flamboyant. He's everything we're saying we don't necessarily support in Australian personalities. Yeah. Well, and also he's everything you expect from yes. a Formula One driver. Yes. I mean, yes. you expect a Formula One driver to be flamboyant, you know, chicks hanging off them, uh, <laughs> you know, like rock, like rock stars kind of thing. And, yeah, I, th- I think he's, uh, he's awesome. Um, you know, it, it, I, I think this year is becoming interesting um, mm. in Formula One because uh, there's definitely some competition. I think the cars are a lot more even now. I mean, I've always, always said to a mate of mine who's an absolute Formula One fanatic, you know, if only we could just get all the drivers in exactly the same car and see what happens, yes. you know. Yes. Um, because there are advantages with different teams and different engines and all that as, as you know, as you see when, when you watch it. But um, he's, yeah, he's a legend. There's no doubt about it. So what was it like marrying then someone as driven? And we'll get to how driven your band was because I already draw, drew that similarity. But your wife who appeared on the show early days, so she supported the sport part of it. You're supporting the artistic. <laughs> so I owe a lot to, to you and your beautiful wife. Seven-time world self champion and a lady I've adored for a long, long, long time, Lane Beachley. How are you going? Let the games begin, Howie. Let the games begin. What's it like all of a sudden living and marrying with someone that is an elite athlete, the, the best of all time in her sport, someone as competitive 
and driven as Lane. Yeah, look, it has, you know, it rubs off on you, um, definitely. Does it? Uh, yeah. And, and I think health-wise, um, she's certainly been instrumental in, in improving my lifestyle <laughs> and my health. <laughs> you know, I, I go to bed at nine now because Lane gets, you know, Lane wakes up at 5.36 every morning just to check the surf. So, yes. I, you know, and that wakes me up. So now I'm on a different time zone than my whole life was before that. But, um, look, it's great. You know, when I met Lane, uh, the band was... was you know, kind of still, still trying to work out uh, what to do. Five years after Michael's death, we we had John Stevens singing for us then, which was great. Um, but it wasn't sort of moving forward uh, in any way or in any sort of um, you know way that we that we felt we were really really getting somewhere with it. Uh, and and I think for me then probably a lot of my drive had left me. Um, you know, the, the, all the mm. drive years with with sort of the 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 eighties and nineties, seventies, eighties and nineties, really. Um, and and by the time the two thousands came around, it was yeah, it was it was difficult. So um, I, I think you know, Lane's taught me uh, you know so many things. And and as I've done with her, I've I've taught her how to say no um, <laughs> because she yes, was I bet. she's all. all you know, always saying yes to everything and just running herself into the ground. So it's a it's a juggling act. Um, but she is driven and still very driven. Um, where you know, I've sort of I'm sort of I've pushed into sort of retirement, shall we say? And I want to go and travel and do stuff, you know. But she still wants to. Uh, she wants to obviously um, uh, save the world, you know. Yeah. Has she taken you surfing before? Has she given you a surfing lesson? Yeah, that was that. We've, we've you know tried to wipe that chapter from our uh, <laughs> from our relationship timeline. But, um, I know <laughs> what you're saying. I know yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She bought me a, a mini mail, and this was you know within the first six months. I think we were together uh, back in <laughs> 2002, and we hired a camper van uh, to to sort of do a surf trip up the coast for five days, and we got as far as. Um, Kalara and opposite the Greengate Hotel in Kalara in Sydney, uh, the van broke down. Um, <laughs> so perfect. We'll just go to the pub while we wait for them to come and change the vehicle over. So it was already starting out as my kind of holiday. You know? But anyway, um, she did she did attempt to uh, teach me. She she was not a very good teacher back then, whereas now she's great at teaching people how to surf and all that sort of stuff. Um, she was crap. Back then, and uh, and you know, I, I basically I, there was one point where we were out. I think I might have been off Boomerang or somewhere like oh, Louis nice. or Boomerang, um, and I'm just paddling for like 20 minutes, and Lane's catching waves and wee, you know, and all this, <laughs> and I'm just going like, this isn't fun. And what, and what was happening was I was I was paddling against a rip and and yeah. trying to get out, and Lane didn't you know offer any kind of. Uh, <laughs> any kind of help or anything. So I stormed into the beach and threw the board on the sand and, you know, uh, chucked a tanty kind of thing. But I did, a couple of days later, you know, I got up pretty easily, couldn't turn, but I I just, it wasn't something, again, I I prefer to watch them participate. Yes, yes. (laughs) The gym, I go to the gym. Do you? um, Are you you in a a cardio man or are you lifting the heavy steel like me in the gym or what are you doing? Yeah, look, I, you know, you're about the same build as me. I'm not trying to be any kind of Iron Man or anything. Um, Just keep fit and get the heart going and, you know. Us skinny men have to stick together. Us skinny men have to stick together. Okay, let's talk music. That's enough sport. Let's talk (laughs) music. When 
um, did music first become part of your life, Kirk? What are your early memories? Um, well, I think um, probably when I before my teens, um, my oldest brother, who is what about seven years older than me. Um, he was playing in a band, playing drums in a band, um, and he used to play music, you know, when it was time to go to bedtime sort of thing um, on his little, you know, battery-operated record player Um, because we didn't didn't have electricity where I grew up, um, you know, at Cottage Point uh, in Sydney. Um, We had a generator that Dad only allowed for a few hours a night for lights and stuff like that. Really? yeah, and the fridge was the fridge was Caro run. The you know the we had a, a battery portable TV that only got the ABC, um, and wow. yeah, it was really really remote and really really unusual. Right smack bang in uh, in a, the middle of a national park, a little village of houses, right on the water. You know, fishing boats. So did did you run amok as kids? Like, yeah, it yeah, sounds I mean, idyllic I, for a young fella. Yeah, it really was until I became a teenager. Um, <laughs> you know, and got interested in girls because it was it was seven miles to or ten kilometres to civilization, and then um, by the time I went to high school, it was another ten k's to uh, Forest High in in French's Forest, which I could get a bus, but there was no transport, public transport. It was a national park. I ended up later on in life um, because mum and dad opened up a restaurant in the house at Cottage Point. Um, I ended up having to hitchhike home from Terry Hills because there was no buses and that hitchhike into a national park. And often I just, I would just walk it. I'd walk the 10 kilometres. I've still got calluses on my hand still from the Globite case that I used to have to carry with (laughs) all the book. It's crazy. Anyway, back Back yeah, to back music. to the music. Back to the yeah, music. Yeah, back to the music. So I, I think, you know, my first real entry into appreciating music was, you know, my brother playing records and then he was in a, in a band. Um, and he, when I was 10, gave me uh, a beat-up acoustic guitar because he, he bought a new one. Um, and that's when, you know, my musical journey really started. And um, I must have had a, an ear for it because I taught myself, um, you know, I, I, there was no music teachers anywhere near me, that's for sure. Um, and I used to, uh, somehow I, I learned how to tune the guitar and play along to the songs on the radio and work out the chords. It's quite huh. bizarre when I think about it, yes. how how I, I can't really remember, you know, how it, how it sort of processed or how I how it even sort of started. And, and then I think I got a chord book or something, you know, a book that shows you the positions um, for chords and, and learnt chords and, and basically taught myself, um, probably pretty badly actually. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was definitely a long process through uh, into my teens um, and then started my first band in, I think it was in year three in high school. What was the first band called? It was called Guinness after Guinness. the bass player. After the bass player's dog, not <laughs> after the beer. <laughs> uh, so, what was what was Guinness knocking out, and what was the first time you played in front of people? Um, well, uh, Tim Farris, who's the eldest right. of the three brothers in NXS, he and I met in second year high school. They moved over from Perth, um, the Farris family, and. He ended up in my high school and we just, I think from memory, it was in a science class or something and noticed the new kid and he had a guitar drawn on his little pencil case, you know, and I thought, ah, 
Muso, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we hit it off straight away and, you know, we've been best friends ever since. So, um, so he and I started the band with a, a bass player and, and a drummer that were in our school. Um, I was the, the singer and the, you know, singer-guitar player and the main songwriter. Um, and that band went through until probably a year and a half after Tim and I finished high school. Um, and I, the first gig, I think it was, you know, a, a fellowship meet, you know, a church, like young, young people. We had, we had a really kind of uh, um, uh, really cool sort of fellowship leader that used to come and do the scripture class you know, once a week um, in high school, and uh, huh. that we'd we'd all have to go and sit in front of, and he'd he'd give a you know a sermon kind of thing. But he was just a really cool guy, and he ran these sort of youth group things, and and we just uh, Tim and I just fell into that at one point and became like full on born again Christians. Um, but uh, if so only the fir- they knew what was coming, Kirk. Yeah, if only I know. they well, knew what was coming down the pipe. I know. Well, the the, the fellowship leader guy, John, uh, you know. A few years later, said, "Look, uh, guys, you know, like I know you're smoking that funny stuff, and yeah. uh, and uh, you know you're always kind of chatting up the girls at the, <laughs> at the youth group. You know, like I think you're going to have to make a choice. And, you know, <laughs> is it going to be music or religion? And you know, right. didn't take us long. No. Um, <laughs> it was a quick decision. <laughs> but um, but so I think I think the first gigs were those sorts of things, and." Uh, Oh, you know, um, school fates and blah, blah, blah. And then obviously later on, I definitely was underage for a bit playing in a few bars, but, um, uh, you know, there, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of gigs, let me say that much. But we used to rehearse whenever we could. And again, there was the difficulty of me living in, in this remote place, Cottage Point. So we used to alternate um, weekends. I'd, I'd stay at Tim's, you know, on one weekend and then he'd come and stay at my house for the weekend, um, you know, between the school, between Friday and Monday. So um, those weekends I was at Tim's in Belrose. We'd, we'd rehearse in, in usually the bass player's garage and, huh. um, yeah, you know, it was... It was crap. <laughs> we were crap. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was. it's all part of the, the journey, you know. There's no doubt about it. So as I said... Kirk, I have got that many questions for you, but <laughs> to just distract you for a moment, what's the key to playing the guitar? I know it's a life's work, but what's the key to being as good as you can be on the guitar? Yeah, I, you have to love it. You know, you just have to be passionate about it like anything, I think, and then you'll, you'll go to sort of no end uh, in practising and, and trying to improve and, and uh, challenge yourself, you know, trying to learn something that just sounds completely ridiculously hard or... So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of sitting around strumming and getting sore fingers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so at what, at, at what point and what does it feel like, and we'll get to the big concerts, but, but but what's it like when you can play it without looking at it in the dark and just know where every fret is, every position? It must be a wonderful feeling to, to playing that first chord, to being able to do it and jumping around the stage and not even looking at what you're doing, just feeling it. Yeah, I, I could never do that. Right. Well, no, you could because I've watched, I've seen, you could do yeah. it in the yeah, dark. No, I, I, I can, yeah, but I, I still, uh, it depends. Um, I still I still needed to look a bit and all that sort of stuff. I think any any guitar player does. I mean, there are definitely some that have just put in so many hours that they just know it, you know, and 
I think later on after my, my teens and all that, I didn't put in the hours that maybe I could have or should have. Um, but, you know, I was never one that could kind of really get up and uh, and jam with a band sort of thing. I, I just learnt my stuff and huh. did it as best as I could. Um, and, you know, never a campfire kind of guy, sit around, you know, banging out. Kumbaya and shit like that, you know. <laughs> Kumbaya um, and shit like that. <laughs> wasn't my scene, you know. Okay. Um, so when, 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 do, when do things progress and and, and I, reading your book, which I couldn't recommend, this is a real treat for me, Kirk, and I, I should have told you at the start because I grew up and you must have people daily come up and say, I grew up and listened to your music and have cert- I have memories of my younger life listening to your music. So it's a great treat for me to have a chat with you and I, I'm really, really appreciative of that. What, what's that like actually when people come up and say, oh, I kissed my first girl, I held my first bloke's hand or I got married to this song? What is it like? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's awesome. I, I think I think what's, you know, difficult nowadays probably is, is um, I think there's people seem to think they have a sense of entitlement now mm. because of because of uh, you know social media and all that, and you just get people come up and say you need to take a photo with me, you know, yeah, and right. so, and it's sort of like how about please, please. you know I mean yes. I'm eating my lunch here you know or whatever Got so I, some, sometimes that can be really annoying but but you know I, I think what I've always felt is that it, it, you know it takes a minute to talk to someone you know that approaches you about it and that minute you know if you're if you're a good person um, and give them some of your time makes their day and it's something so simple um, and you've just made you know someone really happy in someone's day and um, you know look it's 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 full of a mixed bag of um, of things really because it, you know I, what, what is interesting is more and more uh, in recent times is like really young people you know teenagers and and people in their early 20s coming up and saying you are the best band ever you know and they didn't grow up with us they didn't they didn't see the band perform live ever any of that stuff it's it's going on the strength of of our recordings of, of the songs you know that we that we made back in you know years and years ago that's really that's really um, gratifying and really just makes you go wow you know um, Still got it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know? my word. So, and so I don't the, have to do anything. <laughs> so the, 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 the Farris brothers, yeah. is that what the, became, the band became after everyone sort of yeah. joined together? And then I, I was reading in your book that you had to move back to Perth because your drummer was, how old were he? He was still at school so you had to follow yeah, yeah. him because the family took him home. Yeah, he was like 16 or something. Um, the band that I was talking about, My One Guinness, that they yep. fin- we fin- finished and sort of split up, shall we say, in I think early 77. Um, and then I didn't do anything for a while and it was Tim that instigated a, a jam session um, with the, what became the members of Inexcess and a few other musicians at the time, and that that's when that started in in seventy seven, and we decided, well, this is good, you know. The three brothers had never really played together before; they'd always had separate bands, and um, you know, it was like my band's better than yours, and blah blah blah. But um, <laughs> so it was really interesting, you know, that they that, that Tim instigated them all coming together, and John was really young. Um, I can't; I, I'm not even sure he must have been like maybe fifteen. Um, yeah. 
at that at that point, um, being the youngest of the brothers, um, and an amazing drummer always, um, even when he was freaking ten, you know, was he just a, just oh, just a natural? Um, and so we, you know, we started the band and we did. You know, a few gigs around the, you know, the part in North Shore, Avalon and Newport, and a, a few wine bars and things in other places in North Sydney. And, you know, it was sort of not really going anywhere, but going somewhere. Um, and then the Farris family decided to move back to Perth. Their dad uh, took another job or something. And John, being in school, had to move back. Um, <laughs> the rest of us were out of school. And we said, well, you know, we don't want to split up the band. Um, so we all went. We, we all drove across the Nullarbor. Michael and I drove across the Nullarbor in my HR panel van. Oh, now um, you need to tell me about the panel van. What what was it? This, <laughs> this is a trip and a half. We need to explore yeah, this. It was a red HR panel van. I don't even know what year that made it. Um, it was oh. probably, probably mid-60s or something, you know. Um, so it was a good 10, 12 maybe more years old, um, I, you know, I had a paddle van to carry the gear around. Didn't have a mattress in it or curtains. It was to carry the gear around, you know. Um, so, yeah, we, we all headed over there and eventually found, uh, pl- you know, places to live. And What, and what were you doing? Got- what were you doing before you went over there to, to support yourself? You were playing as a band. Like, did you have a job? Yes, I did. I, um, I When I finished high school in uh, 1975, Mum and Dad decided to sell the house at Cottage Point and it went really quickly. Um, and Dad had decided he was going to become a farmer and move to Goulburn and, and huh. buy, buy, you know, some land and build a house on it and, and do cows. And um, he said, well... You're going to have to, you sat me down at the bar. We had a, we had a bar in the house and that's wherever the, where all the serious talks went on with Dad. Um, he said, uh, you're going to have to get a job or you're going to have to move to Goulburn. And, of course, all I'm thinking of is the band, you know, I, I'm going to have to get a job. So I went out to the employment service down in Brookvale here in Sydney um, and, you know, no experience, nothing. I, I don't even know if I would have got, I don't think I would have got into university with my HC, HSC results. But anyway, I got a job as a yard boy in uh, a, a, a car yard, in Bill Buckle Auto's used car yard. Um, what was it called? Bill Buckle Auto's? Bill Buckle Auto's, yeah. <laughs> Very famous around where I, where I am now, where we live. Um, and so I was a yard boy, um, you know, just make sure the cars started, make sure they're all, you know, clean, just odd jobs and uh, all that sort of stuff and um, very, very funny days because, um, you know, used car salesmen in the 70s, Everything you've ever heard or read about them. Well, you, you know. were winding back the odometer and stuff like that, were you? Uh, well, I wasn't doing it, no. But <laughs> it was being done. Right. Oh, yeah, that, that stuff went on for sure. Is it done um, with a drill like you see on the movies or not? I never I never witnessed it. I, okay, I, believe, right. it, I believe it is. Right. We'll move on. We'll move on yeah, from yeah, that. Yeah. So you, but you anyway, got... that, that, that was my job and, right. and uh, I worked there up until we moved to <laughs> Perth. And, uh, and, then, and then, yeah, in Perth we... You know, we, we started to get some gigs. It was tough because it was a really um, covers and hard rock uh, town, Perth, back okay. then. You know, you're either cover band or you play really kind of, you know, Black Sabbathy kind of hard rock or whatever. Um, and we were none of that. So, um, so it was a little difficult to get, you know, the agency motivated. But we eventually started to get some gigs and survived, um, scraped through. And so, what, what would you the, what, what would you be getting paid for a gig as the Farris Brothers? Uh, you know, for a, a couple of hours at the pub. Uh, 
maybe 70 bucks between us or something. And they'd just released their first single called Believe It or Not. It was called Simple Simon. So we thought that we'd give them a go. Now here's my former reporter, Hugh Piper, back then with In Excess. Write songs with a message. Mm, half of them got a message. Half of them got a phone. A simple Simon got a message. Uh, very basic, yeah. What it's is it? It's about a uh, guy I can't fall in love because uh, people like to talk about it. You know, I mean, my, uh, well, well, to give you an example, my wage when I was working at Bill Buckle Autos, if I worked the Saturday morning, um, was 112 bucks in the hand right. a week. You know. A week. Um, yeah, yeah, which was pretty pretty good money, really. Um, so anyway, we, we, we managed to survive and and, uh, and what ended up happening is so we, you know, got to a point where we were doing, you know, some weeks, four nights a week. Um, John was falling asleep in school. Um, so he ended, up, he ended up having to leave school anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then we moved back to Sydney, took John with us um, and uh, moved back to Sydney in 79, I think it was, yeah. Back to Kirk in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games Artist Series, oh, this man, TV star, radio dominator, businessman, sports fanatic and the co-host of the biggest podcast in the country, Andy Lee. Do not miss Andy's episode. Last week on the show, an old school Hollywood legend by the name of Gene Kirkwood. Now, this is a super cool episode about how to make movies and one movie in particular, a little movie called Rocky. For mine, the most iconic sports movie ever made. And Gene, well, Gene was the executive producer of Rocky. It's iconic movie-making gene and, and running through the streets and then obviously up the, the steps of the art museum. Is that written in the script, that location? Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, everything, okay. yeah, everything. We did, everything had to be there. It's the only way you could really make movies. You can improv and things happen, but film is so final. And if you don't have it in a canon, you can't go back. I can't go back and run up the stairs again once I wrap, I'm out of there. And so uh, uh, you, you try to put everything down. Everything was pretty well... Pretty well done. The, the the montage of the training again, like we had to get out of there, so we so we said we would Gareth just run through the market. Matter of fact, when the guy throws him a fruit when he's running, yes, you see what he's running. That was all improv. Ah. <laughs> you know, just threw it. To, you know, so that so we we kept we just kept going. Uh, uh, and the only scene we had to worry about really was the interior of the pet store because the people wanted us out of there pretty quick, and it was a strange thing. Yeah. You've mentioned a few times we had to get out of there. We had to keep moving. What, yeah. what was the what, – what, did you need permits? What was the – or did yeah, you not you have permits? permits? Yeah, you had to be like a citizen. I wasn't like a citizen, you know what I mean? We got we had a, well, a, 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 a neighbour crew, uh, which is non-union, and some of my crew was union from Hollywood, and they were very strict in, in those days. Uh, matter of fact, the, the production manager, his pop passed away about two weeks before. And so we're going to this location because I had to pay the guys off in cash. I had $36,000 in cash <laughs> to pay to pay the crew. And he, he started to cry as we're going down there. So I said, Jesus, I'm so sorry about your dad. He says, not my dad. I don't want to get robbed. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. He, he thought he was going to get robbed there. And it was the union and everything. I said, no, you're not going to get robbed. Nothing's going to happen to you. Sport and movies. What is not to love? That's movie maker extraordinaire Gene Kirkwood on last week's episode of The Artist Series. Next week is Andy Lee. As the great Bill Laurie would say, it is all happening. Let's get back to Kirk. Oh, so I've written here that you fit because I, you might not remember some of this stuff. It says the band's first performance as In Excess was on the 1st of September 1979 at the Ocean Beach Hotel on the central coast of New South Wales. Two questions. Where'd the name In Excess come from? And do you remember that gig on the 1st of September 1979 at the Ocean Beach Hotel? <laughs> well, answer the latter one. Yep. I vague, vaguely remember it because okay. it was pretty, you know, it was pretty significant. But yes. honestly, after nearly 2,000 shows, it's, mm. uh, it's really hard to remember which one was which, you know, um, for the most part. But the name came about, so it's 79, we've moved back from Perth to Sydney, back to the Northern Beaches and... Um, and for a little while, uh, we got picked up by a guy called Gary Morris, who was Midnight Oil's manager. Um, Tim had was out doing, uh, you know, you used to have to do poster runs and handbill runs to try and promote your gig, and you go to a pub. Oh, like on the telephone pole and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so you're doing that 3, yourself? Yeah, three a.m. in the morning because it was illegal. You know, you'd <laughs> run around quickly, sticky taping and watching out for cops and stuff. You know, um, and also handbills. If you're playing at a particular pub, you know, you go the week before and slip handbills under everyone each car's windscreen, you know, windscreen wipers. And Tim was doing it one day and ran into Gary Morris, who was doing the same for Midnight Oil, um, and got to talking. And uh, and anyway, he, he took us on um, and he said, you know, the first meeting, the first thing is the name has to go, um, the Farris Brothers Band. So um, so we kind of workshopped it with, with him and, and some of the people who worked with him and someone came up with the, the idea of In Excess um, a bit like IXL, you know, canned food oh, yeah, yeah. and yep, yep, yep. just, you know, a play on words. It was four letters so you could make it really big on the posters, um, you know, for when, when you're doing posters and all that. Like if you've got a long name, it ends up being really small. If it's four big block letters, you know. So that was that was attractive. And so we, we thought, yep, let's go with that. So it was, you know, it was no sort of... Uh, uh, epiphany or anything like huh. that. It was it was just a, a bunch of names bandied around and drawn out of a hat almost, um, and that's that's how we got the name in excess. I mentioned at the start reading your book, you became enormous, which we'll get to. But there was a long time of being a small band, and I said how hard you work. Describe to me so the people are listening how many shows you're doing, the places you were going, the, the outback joints up in northern WA, what's it like trying to develop your sound and how hard do you need to work to be successful? Yeah. <clears throat> um, it, it's definitely, you know, certainly in, in those early days where it was, uh, you know, unknown territory and we didn't, uh, didn't have a manager initially, obviously. We were just looking after ourselves and all that. It, it you know... <sighs> It's difficult, but the thing is, you know, we, was, we just believed in it so much and we we're all had so much passion for it. You just do it, you know, and, and the big drives, I mean, some, you know, funny stories, we've gone for hours, you know, driving up through Western Australia, like, as you said, to the mining towns and... Uh, give me on, one, you give know. me one. Give, give me it. we got to... This <laughs> is... You, we have as much time as you're prepared to give me. So give me a story about a journey or a, or a show up, 
up in the mining areas of, yeah. of northern Western Australia? Well, we met this guy in Perth at a pub. He came and saw us um, and he said, I want you guys to come up and play uh, in Port Hedland. Um, I can pay, uh, you know, I don't even know what it was. It might have been a 1000 bucks to do a couple of shows at two different sort of um, sister, brother mining towns uh, owned by the same, you know, mining company. Um, and here's a bag, a bag of pot for incentive. Um, <laughs> so we're in. <laughs> we were in. We hadn't seen pot. We hadn't seen pot in about eight months, you know, because you couldn't get it in Perth. Anyway, um, so so that that was great. We we, we went and hired, we hired two kind of uh, uh, vans uh, to put all the gear in and whatever. Um, and Tim decided to be the navigator. Uh, you know, maps. We didn't have GPS back in those no. days. Uh, maps and Tim sees a road that look well. That looks shorter than the other one. Let's take that one. <laughs> and of course, it was like fifteen hundred, you know, miles of dirt road. Um, so all the gear was just, uh, you know, dust in everything. But at one point, um, the the van in front of, uh, that had most of the drums in it, um, the the back, um, you know, the tailgate on it came loose and opened up and the guys in front obviously had been smoking some of the pot that the promoter guy <laughs> gave us, um, didn't realise and gear started falling out of the, you know, of the van. Well, snare like drums. music gear. Yeah, you know, snare drums rolling down the road. <laughs> and, we're, and we're like flashing the lights and honking the horn and they didn't, you know, eventually they saw us and we had to go back and salvage all, you know, all the bits and pieces that fell out. It wasn't too much, thankfully. But, yeah, you know, every, every, every crevice and every guitar and amplifier it was full of <laughs> fine red Western Australian dust for years, you know. Um, but we got there and, and did the gigs and um, there was, you know, oh, stories go on and on. But, yeah, it was, it, you know, that sort of thing I think that's just brought us closer together as people and, and those experiences and, and fun things and challenges and all that uh, make you stronger. So, um but you know, once we got to Sydney and changed the name to Inexcess, and uh, and Gary Morris was was managing us uh, at that point, um, he had become uh, a, a a Billy Graham crusade born again Christian. Oh, okay. Um, and he sat us down one day about three months into our kind of you know relationship with him. Um, in fact, all, all six of us uh, and him in. I don't know if it was his car or if it was one of my cars, but, you know, in the old days when you had a bench seat in the front so you could squeeze seven people into a, into a big holding back then, you know. And, he, and uh, we drove up to the rooftop of this factory in Brookvale, I don't know why, uh, and he said, okay, guys, here's the deal. Um, you know, you, you guys, the biggest bands in the world are going to be Christian bands and you've got to become a Christian band. So... Doesn't matter if not, not all of you become Christians, as long as some of you are. Um, that's that's the future, and and oh. if I'm going to if I'm going to keep managing you, that's that's what's got to happen. Um, so, like the youth leader uh, back in our teens, 
before you said goodbye to Gary Morris. But the um, Lords had sec- two goes yeah. at drawing you into his bosom we just and two listen. times you've escaped. I know, we wouldn't listen. Heathens. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, <laughs> so we uh, we left Gary and and uh, and that was when we met Chris Murphy, who became our, you know, long-time manager. Um, we pleaded with him to manage us. He, he was an agent. He wasn't really interested in managing anyone, but we somehow talked him into it. Um, and so that was that was a really major turning point. And from that point, um, with him sort of driving driving the truck, um, we uh, in that first year in 1980, um, when our first album came out, I think we probably did about 380 shows that wow. year. Some night some nights we were doing three gigs in one you know one evening, an early slot in a pub, go to another place, and then do a uh, a gig at the you know one of the unis like at three in the morning or whatever. Um, so it was, but it was fun, you know. It was just like this is awesome, <laughs> you know. We're, we're we're working every every night, every pub in every city back then uh, had a band on every night. Um, so there was so so many opportunities to play and and most of all to to kind of I guess hone our our sound and and, yeah. and hone our our kind of stage um, you know our, our sort of stagecraft I guess you'd call it um, and we we had several years of that and and you know driving up and down to Brisbane, spend three weeks there, play every night, drive down the coast, stopping at, you know, Bangalore RSL and, and Coffs Harbour, blah, blah, and breaking it up on the way down, three weeks in Sydney, then down to Melbourne and then across to Adelaide and back to Sydney and up to Brisbane, you know. Um, it was it was mental. Um, how we're still alive, you know, driving in our shit little cars that we had, or, you know, unsafe, no seatbelts, nothing, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's quite incredible, but... But, you know, best of all, we had so much time to be able to, uh, to improve our, our, our musicianship and our songwriting and our, uh, our, our playing together as a unit, you know, the chemistry between us all on stage and, and, and connecting kind of telepathically almost um, as a band was, was just incredible, you know, and, and it really proved uh, proved itself, you know, later on when we started going overseas and playing with all these really big bands uh, that were, you know, coming out or, or some of them established, of course, um, that couldn't really play. And we'd get on stage and we'd just be this, this freaking energy, you know, at, at the crowd. Not that we were aggressive music, but just there was a lot of energy and a lot of, a lot of uh, musicianship and, and and passion and um, yeah, it was it was a real force and and I think that was a big part of what helped us in our career breaking you know first North America and ongoing was because we could really play and really perform and Michael developed into this amazing you know sexy god front man and uh, he wasn't at first you know he was just a pimply kid like we all were. What was um, his not- um what 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 was he what was he like as a singer at first? And this is another question I have for you. How much is natural talent of someone in his situation? How much can 
he learn and work to become the singer that he became? A bit like what I was asking you about being the guitarist that you became. Well, you're all, you're always learning, you know, and and I think as a musician, you're always trying to improve and 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 get better and all that sort of thing. But you know, you're not born a rock star. Um, you, you know, you just just a normal person, and you sort of yep. fall into it or whatever. And 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 the same was for Michael. I don't think he actually even intended on being a singer. I think he would have rather have been, a, you know, a thespian or a, a, an actor or, a, or an author or something like that. He read a lot, you know. He read a lot of really kind of highbrow books back then that I just like, eh. <laughs> give me a science fiction book, thanks. Um, but um, he was, you know, well-learned, well-travelled because he'd lived in L.A. for a while and lived in Hong Kong with family moves to those places. Um, he's Australian, Australian-born. But um, so I don't think he really had any intention of being a singer, but, it, but he and Andrew Farris, the middle brother, they became good mates in high school and uh, and Andrew kind of pushed him into being the singer because he didn't play an instrument and Andrew was a musician and they'd hang out. So he kind of he kind of fell into it by default. And, in fact, when, when we first started as the Farris Brothers, um, I was still singing lead vocals on some of the songs and Michael was singing lead on the others. And But... What you know? What could he do other than stand around and play a tambourine? Because he didn't play an instrument, you know. So that, so that you know, it made sense eventually that well, you know, Michael should be the 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 full, the full lead vocalist, and I'll just do all the backing vocals. Um, so you know, he like all of us had to learn his craft and learn what worked and 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 you know, uh, movements on stage, what. You know, he'd watch people's reaction, and I guess all that sort of thing. So, and that was the beauty of of, of the uh, the great background we had in the pubs, you know, of Australia, yeah. is that that you know we could learn, and we weren't thrust into the limelight, you know, straight off the bat. Um, we we had time to develop. Record companies allowed you to develop them. You'd do a you know five album deal with them, and they'd stick to it. Um, and allow you to develop and, and evolve and improve. And so they saw long-term thing, you know, with it, whereas I don't think it's quite like that these days. I think it's kind of you got to have all your shit together straight away when you release something. Um, and if it doesn't work, well, there's the potential for the record company to go, well, you know, bye-bye. <laughs> so so, so what, it was different. It was really different, you know. What was, the, what was your first ever release single? And can you recall... Because this is the bit that I, whenever I'm listening to music, I don't recall much. I've got to say. Well, can you, <laughs> but you, I'm probably, right. you probably won't recall this because I listen to a song on the radio and I think, wow, imagine if that was my song and I'm driving in the car listening to it. Can you remember first hearing a song, an in excess song on the radio? Well, like, what would it have been? Yeah. And what's it like? I do. I do when, yeah. what, what's it like when you hear your own song on the radio? That must be. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's like so cool. Yeah, it's it's so exciting. Um, we were don't know if all of us were in the car, but we we're in Melbourne doing you know shows, and we were driving around in my uh, I think it was an HR sedan I had then. Don't know why I went to HRs all the time, but um uh, and uh, the first single, which was called Simon, um, it was never put on the first album, but it was the first single release. Um, Came on the radio and and we were just screaming, you know, out the window. And, well, yeah, yeah, and, and it's you know, it's it's obviously incremental, but it's like you know, we've made it. We're on the radio, you know. Uh, of course, you know, we hadn't made it, but at least it got played on the radio. <laughs> and um, and it, yeah, so and and then I think I think possibly that that week we did countdown for the first time um, performing the song uh, in Melbourne, and um, and that was you know, like that was. 
super exciting. And so, do you do you play it live? Oh, this is now this is ignorant questions for me that knows nothing about music. Do you play it live? Is it dubbed? Is it recorded? Like you're sitting down with Molly. Like how, how does it take place? And now for something completely different from Sydney in excess. Just keep walking. Michael, how are you? Welcome to the show again. Now, listen. Um... Generally, with a lot of those shows, and there's a, there was a similar show in England for decades. It might even still be going called Top of the Pops. It yes. was a very similar format. Um, the idea is you mime, but the but the singer has to sing the lead vocal. Okay. But even even you know even sometimes that wasn't the case. Um, and then some bands would come on and demand to to do it live to prove something and whatever you know. Um, but predominantly, yeah, the the music was mimed, uh, but the lead vocalist would have to sing. You know. <laughs> so what's yeah. what's the what's the single or the album? And I want to talk to you about America and why why that move was made in a moment. But what what is the single or the album? that takes you to the next level from being on the radio and playing in sort of smaller venues to the world starts expanding within Australia anyway, Kurt? Yeah, well, it was the third album um, called Shibu Shibar, which was produced by Mark Opitz. Um, He was probably uh, the top producer in Australia at the time. He'd done bands like The Angels and uh, The Reels and Cold Chisel and, um, yeah, ACDC, all sorts of big acts, you know, or who became big acts. But um, so that album, um, kind of a funny story to it. We recorded one song with Mark just to try him out and then we decided that uh, Michael and Andrew and I would go on a kind of a, a... a fact-finding mission around the world. I'd ne- you know, Andrew and I had never been, well, I hadn't been overseas before. So the three of us set off to LA, uh, New York and London to meet, meet some producers, um, potential producers. Uh, this was in probably late 82, okay. I think, yep. 1982. Okay. Um, we'd had two albums out at that point and then we'd just recorded this one song with Mark Opitz and we took that song with us to play to producers and whatever else. And, and the resounding comments from most of these producers and some of them really big guys, like one of them, Bob Clearmountain, became, you know, the go-to guy for decades to actually mix your record um, when it was completed. Anyway, um, most of them said, like, you know, this is fantastic. Why, don't, why aren't you using the guy that did this? Because um, ah. it sounds so different and so fresh, and um, especially in America, you know, it, it, it sounded like nothing else that was on anywhere in America on the radio. And that, that was called The One Thing, that song. Anyway, um, so we ended up coming home and deciding to go with Mark Opitz and we did the whole album with him. And then that was the album um, that got uh, got assigned to North America. So that was the big leap, the first sort of big leap, um, that album. And I don't recall that 
I don't think any, I don't think we even had a number one in Australia at that point, and even off that album, um, it wasn't until the album after. So anyway, that was that was sort of the album that jumped us uh, into going overseas and and uh, and and doing some tours there, and uh, that that was super exciting and super so, fun. I, again, I've written here, mate. Uh, in excess undertook their first US performance in San Diego in March 1983 to a crowd of 24 patrons uh, supporting, I don't know if it's the same tour, supporting your man Adam Ant. Yeah, well, that that particular show, no, that was a showcase gig. Right. Um, Because, you know, you'd go over there and you'd do a a showcase gig in LA and a showcase gig in New York and it would be some media and record company people and friends and whatever. So so that San Diego show, yeah, that that it was probably right, probably 24 people and and this this was the this was the problem. This is what this is what happened to a lot of Australian bands is they you know get really big uh like you know Cold Chisel for example, um and they go to America and no one's heard of them and they ha- you have to start at the bottom again. You know, you have to start playing in little dingy bars to 20 people, you know. Um, and I think and, and I think what happened with a lot of Australian bands is they went, this is too hard, you yes. know. I, 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 let's go home where we're loved, you know. So um, it's, the, it's the old big fish in a small pond. Yeah, you, you're yeah. You're prepared to become the small fish in a very big pond, which, which it's a whole other reset, I guess, for your ego and everything. Totally. But we, we understood it, um, thankfully, and also, you know, with the help of Chris Murphy, like he'd seen this particular scenario play out with with other big Australian acts where they'd go over and, you know, they'd play small shows and they're like, well, that's that's too hard. So um, we, what we ended up doing was um, getting support shows and that meant um, going on tour with, uh, you know, a, a bigger band uh, and open for them and you do a couple of months on the road. Um, you know, you travel separately, you don't all travel together. Um, and so the first tour was um, with Adam Ant, um, who we ended up renaming Adam Arsehole because um, <laughs> he was. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so our role every night was to try and blow, you know, blow Adam and off stage. Um, right, so it became our, a competitive with, with thing. Oh, yeah. We, we, we want to get the job done. We want to be the main yeah. guys here. Right. Absolutely. I love, I love it. So that, you know, that was a real eye-opening uh, tour because uh, MTV had just started in America, which was 24-hour music Six, television. Five, four, we've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Um, it was a whole brand new thing. They were scrambling for uh, content so that they could run 24 hours. And so our, our, our little, you know, our little song that we'd recorded with Mark Opitz, we'd done a video for. It went Which on was? to The One Thing. Yes. Um, oh, that was the first release yes. off the album we did with him. Um, and uh, it went straight on to MTV and, and went on high rotation um, and we'd pull is, into Is that it. the one where you're eat, uh, sitting at a dinner table or not? Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Like there's these girls eating like figs. Figs and, and yeah, yeah. It's sort of like chickens a, apart. A, 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 yes, it's like a, you know, one of those Great, great like concept. Feasts. Yes. Yeah. I watched great it yesterday. Concept. I watched it yesterday. What it has to do with the song, I don't know, <laughs> but anyway, didn't matter. But we, uh, yeah, it got on high rotation and, and we 
we'd pull into these little college towns, you know, on the Adam Ant tour, um, and we'd be getting recognised because people had seen us on MTV, and it was just nuts, you know. We we're like, we love this place. I bet, I bet. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, and um, you know, we're all in one one bus, uh, like one. They have all these these tour buses over there, and um, it's got bunks and it's got a you know lounge up the front and microwave oven and TV and blah blah blah. Um, so you just travel around in that and virtually live in it. Um, sometimes hotels, sometimes you do, you know, an overnight drive that's like 16 hours after the gig to another town in America. And, you know, it, 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 there was definitely sleep deprivation, there's no doubt about it, in, in our early years. But, but it was so exciting. And so we did that tour and uh, we had a, a little bit of a break. And then the next, next tour in North America was opening for the Go-Go's. Um, which was a lot of fun. Um, they were they were great girls, and um, yeah, all, all sorts of shenanigans, and uh, and and it was a you know bigger tour. Um, so each time we went back to America, uh, it, it was a, you know another step up each time. Of course, we'd had more single releases, so more people were starting to know some of our songs, and uh, and we were getting you know people coming to see us, not the main act, but they had to come you know, to that show yes. without a see us, um, which, was, which was interesting as well. But, um, yeah, so Shabu Shabar, that third record we released was the one that, that sort of opened up the, the doors to international. Only North America first. We only um, signed to North America, which is, you know, the US and Canada. Um, and then later on we got a deal in Europe and the rest of the world. And so t- talking about Europe and people wanting to see you that, uh, rather than Adam or whoever it may have been, it gets to another level and I read in your book and I, I enjoyed it that you were you were fronting up to start the show the support act for Queen. So now this is getting on a reasonably high level now but for, I think it's from your diary and you're talking about the fact that Queen fans are there to see Queen and they're not there to see the support act and no. they can get stuck right in. Yeah, yeah, they can. Yeah, they, they throw loaves of bread. I don't know why. Not, <laughs> not tomatoes on, or anything. on stage. Yeah, loaves of bread. I, I, no one knows why. So you're on stage and blokes are throwing the old tip-top at yeah. you. Yeah. Usually not sliced. Usually That's not sliced, good, though. You know. <laughs> you know, some of it was tasty bread. You know, it was good. We were hungry. So <laughs> is, there, is there, like, you, you speak to athletes and, you know, Aaron Finch plays his first game for Australia and he's sitting there looking at Ricky Ponting do, and he's like, wow, I, how can I be in the same team? Yeah. Do you then meet Freddie Mercury and these guys and think, wow, we are on the same stage? Is Do, do you have that at that stage of your career or no? Or is it just you're all musos and you all do a similar thing? Oh, yeah. It's a little It's a little bit that, a little bit, you know, we all do the similar thing. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we're, oh, well, I was a Queen fan and we, we actually ended up doing, we did a, like a three or four-month tour uh, through Europe with them, opening for them um, as the main opening act, and huh. um, the, I think most of all, what I what I remember, I certainly did, and I think all of us did, is we would you know watch these bands, um, these ones that have made it, and and try and you know try and work out what they were doing that works and what doesn't work and what 
applies to us and comparing and learning um, from what they're doing, you know, stealing little ideas and, and all that sort of thing. So it's, I, that was very much a big part of it um, with the opening for these other acts. Is to, what was, what was Freddie like? Give, give, me a, give me a Freddie Mercury he, story. Uh, he, I don't know if he was bipolar, but he, he, you know, some days he was very aloof. Other days, you know, we'd party all night and that sort of thing. So... Um, you just, you know, it would just depend on the day if he was tired or whatever. So, a, li- a little bit, uh, a, a little bit sort of up and down, you know. Um, okay. Whereas the other guys, I mean, Roger and and Brian, who who were, I think were the true fans of In Excess, the ones that, that that got us on the tour, the drummer and the guitar player, Roger and Brian, um, they were big fans of In Excess and, and that's how we got on the tour. They, they said they, they wanted us to go to be on the tour. So they were great guys and they were just, you know, all regular sort of guys. I mean, you know, God, the amount of celebrities and, and, and rock stars and actors and things I, I, people I've met over the years and, quite frankly, most of them are utterly disappointing um, <laughs> as, as people or, you know, as in like, oh, well, yeah, you're not really like what the media paints, you, you know, yeah, you're actually okay. bo- boring, you know. Like, right. So, so it's funny, you know, um, we, all, we all perceive Yes, you know, celebrities uh, as how how it's dealt to us from the media and and uh, and we believe the media. Um, so you know, it's it's funny when you go when you do kind of get time to get to some, know some of these people. It isn't all normal people, you know, predominantly. Um, some of them are up their ass, but most of them are, are just really normal people, you know. <laughs> That's the end of Kirk Pengilly Part A. Don't disappear. We've got plenty more of what you need. Sorry, in part B. Listener.